So part three of the Urantia book, for those who are just getting familiar with the way that the book is laid out, part three of the book covers the beginnings of our solar system, including the birth of our sun, the origin of our solar system, and the prerequisites that were necessary for life to evolve on our world. Very interesting to read about all of the things that you don't think about that come into bringing a world capable of sustaining life, much more than I was ever presented to me in astronomy or even ecology in class and in college. So from the first to the last paper in this series, we are, we are basically led through the long evolutionary path of our planet, including the beginnings of primordial life to the appearance of of intelligent life forms and through the intervening geological ages the age of Pangaea of ocean and land disbursement the subsequent ages from the appearance of plant and vegetable life to the appearance of more advanced life forms and eventually the appearance of human beings with will development and what is also interesting about part 3 is that the papers fill in a lot of missing gaps of how human beings developed through time, including our customs, our early belief systems, eventuating in later religion, and how we learn we learn how civilizations are evolved. And also equally important, the spiritual contribution of those behind the scenes in the form of periodic revelations from time to time that have occurred throughout human history and have left their impact. And so the basic message of of part three, just as it is in part two and part one, is that we're not accidents of time or the result of random causation, which is what current science asserts. Life is intelligently planned. And we are also told uh, an interesting fact about our world, which is that it is a decimal planet, meaning that for every 10 planets that evolve, to have life forms along a certain pattern, one in ten of these worlds become experimental, where new techniques are allowed to be introduced to improve upon life progression. So, for example, we're informed that on most worlds, will, you know, the the ability to make a will choice and not just be an automaton or mechanistic like some lower forms of animal, will doesn't appear normally appear in human beings until after the birth of the more advanced colored races. That's usually how it is on most worlds. Uh, They're distinct racial types, both skeletal and, of course, skin tone and head, head shape as well. All of these are distinct among racial types on most worlds. And usually it's when that advanced type of human being shows up Uh, that that human being is capable of having will and then subsequently has spirit or soul potential. And that's where the real designation comes into play. We're told, for example, that at the moment that Andon and Fanta, the first true advanced humans, uh, when they appeared and they made their decision to move north and away from their tribes in Afghanistan, what we now know is Afghanistan, Uh, And that signified that our planet became registered 
to the spiritual administrators on high that we were a legitimate world that was host to a legitimate uh, life form that had spirit potential. And so that was a significant demarcation. Now, what's interesting about our world is that will appeared a lot earlier because it it actually arrived in pre-colored races. They were still modern, but they didn't have distinctive skin colors. And I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I believe, and I've said on this podcast before, I believe the Denisovans are the ones that represent this early group of man, highly intelligent, above their fellows, able to communicate in a crude language and express love. And more importantly, according to the revelators, they were able to express a crude form of worship, of seeking out. And that was the demarcation. So it was actually mind that was significant equally as much as it was being biologically superior. And so the red man typically would appear first, followed by the the yellow or the orange. I don't remember the exact, but they appear over time mostly. The exception to the rule on our world is that pre-colored man had will before the colored races appeared a half a million years later. And so all of this is explained in part three in the book. The red man appears first. He rules then there are robust types. They learn tool-making. A crude form of social development occurs. And it is here where ghost fear comes into play, where eventually uh, an evolutionary religion or belief system uh, comes into play, the belief in spirits of a spirit world. And they first appear in that early man. Now, in our world, as I d- described, and on Infanta, the first human beings to exhibit free will, made a decision. And it was that that spawned uh, what we would call ascendant human beings or evolutionary will human beings. So part three also discusses the migratory patterns of early man as well. The Neanderthal is well covered. And it's interesting because there was a lot of information that came out towards the end of the 20th century. They were finding all kinds of, of sites where they were finding remnants of Neanderthal. And almost word for word, in I think I, in one of my articles that you might find on urantiaradio.net, uh, it talks about the tools they use, their customs, and all of this wasn't even discovered until, like I said, you know, 1992, 95, you know, after the turn of the century. But the Urantia book, of course, had revealed all of this in 1934. So in many ways, it was very prophetic. Anyway... So as we discussed, it, you know, the migratory patterns of early man, the Denisovans pretty match up, you know, uh, pretty well match with the description given to the Andon and Fanta descendants. Now there were different tribes, and then eventually the Neanderthal was an offshoot around 250,000 years after Andon and Fanta first appeared, and they were... Uh, sort of seen as a race of promise that they had real potential but they didn't really ever go anywhere they just were sort of brutish i mean you know they were very brave they they were certainly somewhat advanced maybe in physical stature than the andonites but they weren't intellectually very advanced and not even spiritually either 
And so it wasn't until modern man came, the true Sangik race, the first colored races, appeared, and they wiped them out. I mean, they wiped them out pretty quickly. Well, relatively speaking, there were remnants of the Neanderthal as late as 250,000 years ago. But by then, they'd pretty much been dominated and driven off. Uh, for example, the Yellow Man completely drove off the Neanderthals. They chased them away off the continent of Asia. And this is all detailed in the Urantia book, part three. And then, of course, the, sink, the six uh, races, the Sangic races, were later uplifted by the Adamic race that would appear uh, by our timeline about almost four, uh, under 40,000 years ago. And uh, they completely spread their seed. This is all explained uh, and in many ways, the third part of the book appears to be consistent with modern science in a lot of ways, but there are several departures that have caused a little bit of consternation over the last 50 years since the Urantia book uh, has been printed. And mainly it's because, you know, diehard Urantia book don't like to admit that the Urantia book wasn't completely accurate on some elements of science. But as it has been explained by many, uh, they, the scientists were sort of, and it even says in the Arantia book that they had to, they have a mandate to not reveal anything that we won't have an opportunity to find out for ourselves. And in this way, they're, they're sort of, sort of like the, uh, what's that prime directive on Star Trek, right? They don't want to give us unearned information, but they do provide us a lot of information that we obviously will never be able to recover. So when they talk about how we evolve certain traditions and customs, well, it would be very hard for anthropologists to go back 700,000 years and try to figure out, you know, for example, you know, why people kiss each other. You know, it, the Arantia book explains that that actually started from a crude custom of exchanging saliva. Um, things like that, those little things, those little cultural idioms where you go, I wonder what, you know, like throwing rice. I mean, we already kind of know that it's a sign of fertility, but, it, you know, the Arantia book takes a step further. It really goes back and explains, you know, like uh, the different characteristics of each of the races and how they emerged uh, from Uttar Pradesh, Pradesh. They don't say Uttar Pradesh, but that's where the original six races all coming from one family, which, by the way, was another unique, you know, talking about how Urantia was a decimal planet or an experimental planet. So not only did we have a, a, a group of modern humans that arrived capable of will and worship in Andon and Fanta before the colored races, and then also usually colored races, as I mentioned, come over a period of time. So in a, in a normal situation on an evolutionary world, you would have the red man and then the yellow and then the blue and then the orange and the green and then finally the indigo. Well, the uniqueness of the Arantia experience is that they all came from one family, 19 children born and each with a different shade, a slightly different shade. And then their ancestors would, would be more predominantly red, yellow, and they all lived in the same area. And then as, as this population grew... The orange uh, family members would sort of hang and they would go start their situation and their tribe would emerge. And then the green, the orange and the green 
gravitated to North Africa, away from India. They traversed, I guess, the the uh, the peninsula of India was in such a way where it may have been easier to navigate uh, because you didn't have all these hot, dry deserts to contend with. In the Middle East, Mesopotamia wasn't, you know, the desert that it is today. So it was a little easier for these migratory patterns to occur. So you had the blue race, which descended and eventually dominated much of Europe, driving out the Neanderthals there. And they're described as the Cro-Magnon in the Urantia book, The Blue. So the Cro-Magnon period would be about when these, these migratory races began to split up. The indigo going south into Africa, where they stayed. The orange and green basically decimated each other in constant warfare. Uh, and the remnants of both of these survived in the indigo, we're told, including characteristics like tall, being extremely tall, seven, eight feet tall. Meanwhile, the blue dominated Europe. The yellow took over Asia, as did the red. But the red were driven out, and their last descendants came over the Bering Straits, according to the Urantia book, about 80,000 years ago. And And current anthropologists are now... They keep moving the date backward, but they're now thinking that the first Indian tribes to come from the Bering Straits got here maybe 15,000, 20,000. But the Urantia book pegs that at about 80,000 years ago. So we'll see if there's ever a reconciliation between those two time periods. But all of this described in part three. But it gets a lot more interesting. Not only does it go through the human history, it also goes through a lot of spiritual aspects, uh, how societies develop from age to age. And there's a certain pattern that we follow. There are stages of development, epical ages. And we're in currently what they call the post-bestowal sun age. But yet we're also, because of the depravity of the Caligastia default and then the Adam and Eve failing, we're sort of behind in many ways, and this is where it's sort of, you know, we talk about how the Urantia book is a revelation, and it fills in the missing gaps. But, you know, it does something more. It also, it sort of catches us up to everything that we would have been told already. Had Caligastia succeeded in developing early civilization in the Persian Gulf, we would be looking at a a a, a civilization that has existed for half a million years in the Persian Gulf area, probably would have moved up a little bit. But, you know, Iran or, or Baghdad uh, could be, would have been the cultural center. That would have been the grand university had they succeeded at developing early man's progress. But it, it failed miserably. And man languished for 100,000, 200,000 years and then 40,000 years ago, Adam and Eve show up with basically the same principle. To biologically uplift man, but also to increase his spiritual awareness. And they would have taught us everything that the Arantia book is teaching us now. We would already have this knowledge in our society. And so that's why it seems so strange and unorthodox is because the Arantia book is saying, look, you know, you guys have to catch up. You're in the post-bestowal sun age. Everything that Jesus taught you 
about the golden rule, about how people should treat each other and and how you should respect one another and honor the Father and develop your worship and your relationship. All of this stuff that Jesus tried to teach us, but we were still essentially still in the Stone Age. We still believed in sacrificial lambs and and circumcision for the sake of showing your dedication to the Lord God of Israel. So by the time Jesus showed up, there was only a very small group of people, and they were those who adhered to the Jewish religion. Because in the Jewish religion, if you trace it all the way back, you know, and the Arantia book concurs with all of this, they had planted the seed that at some point a bestowal son should show, that would show up. And it was the Jewish, the Hebrew faith that carried this truth down through the ages so that at least one small group of humanity would be prepared to receive Jesus when he arrived. Now, fortunately for us, the Greeks had enough old teachings from Dalmatia where they were naturally receptive. They were hungry for a, a philosophy of religion. You know, they excelled in art and certainly Plato and laws and all the morality arguments that they developed, all of the theories, their science, but they didn't have a, their own religion, and so they were very receptive to it. They were actually more receptive to it than the Jews because by the time Jesus had arrived, uh, the religion, the Hebrew religion, had become so uh, full of laws and rules and regulations and formality it was basically you had the priests and you had the citizens of Palestine or Judea. And they were what I would say the 15th, 16th century Catholic Church was to Christianity. It's very strict. It was, a, it was almost like a state religion. And, there were only, and, and you had a power structure set up. So you had, you know, priests who could tell, you know, the citizens, the faithful, you have to do this. You have to do this uh, if you're going to get salvation. And so, anyway, uh, just kind of going through that. We also learn in part three about the Lucifer Rebellion, which occurred in its impact, as I just discussed with Caligastia, uh, who screwed up that plan. And then you have the Midway creatures, who were the offspring of Adam and Eve, and also the earlier primary Midwayers, who were the offspring of the Nodites, Land of Nod, Nodites. The Caligastia 100, uh, who, who actually spawned the Nodite, who would later become a predominant group. Uh, and they also migrated north and infused their bloodline. Uh, much of it got absorbed by the Caucasians, um, and then some in the, in the Mesopotamian area, the Arabians. Anyway, all of this is disclosed and laid out. And then we get into the spiritual aspects of the human being and the human experience. And they go into the thought adjusters. And then they describe the spiritual uh, concepts as they relate to development of the moral and the mortal intellect. And then what's also interesting in part three, which I found to be very fascinating, was the description of the angelic seraphic government that sort of rules behind the scenes, and they assist in our continual development. It's very, very exciting when you read about how involved they are in trying to keep us 
from moving backwards and moving forward and be, becoming progressive in our thoughts. Not progressive like today's progressive, but progressive in working towards, well, everything in the, in the universe is be you perfect even as I am perfect. That's the mandate. And so that applies to the individual as well as the society. We are always trying to be better at who we are, always trying to work towards equilibrium. And there really is a planetary government behind our view that administers to us continuously. So I think for part three of the book, it's a great place to start for a lot of folks who kind of want to delve into it. And you're going to be fascinated because you get to read about man's early history and what we did. And, and I haven't known anybody who's ever read any of part three and has walked away going, wow, that's just amazing. So I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here uh, from, from part three, from paper 65, just to kind of give you a sense of how they describe things in our history and, and the phraseology and, and the depth of what they what they are saying to us. Uh, so let me just read. It says uh, from paper 65, paragraph, section three, paragraph one, it will hardly be possible to explain to the present-day mind many of the queer and apparently grotesque occurrences of early evolutionary progress. A purposeful plan was functioning throughout all of these seemingly strange evolution of living things. But we are not allowed arbitrarily to interfere with the development of the life patterns after they have once been set in operation. Life carrier sons may employ every possible natural resource and may utilize any and all fortuitous circumstances which will enhance the developmental progress of the life experiment. But we are not permitted mechanically to intervene in or arbitrarily to manipulate the conduct and course of either plant or animal evolution. Many features of human life afford abundant evidence that the phenomenon of mortal existence was intelligently planned, that organic evolution is not a mere cosmic accident. When a living cell is injured, it possesses the ability to elaborate certain chemical substances which are empowered so to stimulate and activate the neighboring normal cells that they may immediately begin the secretion of certain substances which facilitate healing processes in the wound. And at the same time, these normal and uninjured cells begin to proliferate. They actually start to work, creating new cells to replace any fellow cells which may have been destroyed by the accident. This chemical action and reaction concerned in wound healing and cell reproduction represents the choice of the life carrier sons of a formula embracing over 100,000 phases and features of possible chemical reactions and biologic repercussions. More than half a million specific experiments were made by the life carriers in their laboratories before they finally settled upon this formula for the Urantia life experiment. When scientists on Urantia know more of these healing chemicals, they will become more efficient in the treatment of injuries, and indirectly they will know more about controlling certain serious diseases. Since life was established on Urantia, the life carriers have improved this healing technique as it has been introduced on other worlds. 
in that it affords more pain relief and exercises better control over the proliferation capacity of the associated normal cells. So what they're saying to us here is they explain that they design all of this stuff, they bring it here, they implant it, then they let it go. They let it grow, they let it go. And because we're a decimal planet and they can try new things, they, they actually improved upon the healing technique of the cell. And now they're using that, that new technique. Now we're planet 606, and since our life was established, uh, I think it's 619 now, there's 619. So there's 13 worlds now that have better healing techniques as a result of what they were able to carry out here. Isn't that interesting? Talk about a cosmic concept. Now, another important facet of Part 3 is the discussion of marriage and family life and it is and its important to societal growth. Now, you know, we learn a lot of the beginnings of progressive religion, starting with the Adamic mission and still later the advent of Melchizedek, who taught monotheism. Monotheism spread out from the world from about 1900 to the present day. It's one of the reasons that Abraham and the Hebrew religion came into existence, because of the teachings, and Melchizedek was the third epical revelation. And there's a lot uh, about him and his impact on all the world religions, also contained in part three. But what most was interesting was the uh, Abraham monotheism, as I mentioned, was the preparatory religion for the fourth epical revelation, the birth and life of the bestowal son, of course, Michael, and we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. And that the final paper of part three sets the stage for Jesus being born, and they go into his previous six bestowals. So the Creator Son has to bestow himself upon the seven stages of personality existence, from the highest to the lowest. We're the lowest. So at one point, Jesus incarnated himself into a Melchizedek, a Melchizedek son. He also experienced life as uh, a, a seraphim, seraphim. He experienced life in an identity as a material son, as an Adam. And it goes into his career. I think he was a Lananandek son, if I'm not mistaken. And then he uh, laid down his life as, as that individual and then reappeared as a more, a more experienced creator son. And so the final bestowal took place on our world as a man, as a human being. And so all of this leads, like it leads to the final section, part four of the Arantia book, The Life and Teachings of Jesus. So having gone through and provided a summary of what each of the first three parts of the Arantia book contain, I really hope that this helps you grasp the overall structure of the Urantia Revelation. From both a position of time and space, we start from the beginning in part one, and we work our way outward from paradise to our local area of space, the local universe, in part two. Until finally we get to our world in part three, which lastly gets centered upon the most significant life to be lived on this world as a further revelation of spiritual truth found in part four. The life, the life and teachings of the actual Son of the Living Father, who has, of course, made all of this possible. And so there's your introduction and also the conclusion of this three-part series on the Arantia book. 
Uh, Part four requires little introduction, except to say that it is the replete narrative of the life and teachings of Jesus as he lived and as he died 2,000 years ago. It includes a description of his home life, his associations, his private and public ministry, a real introduction to the personalities of the apostles, and equally important why his life matters on high, the spiritual significance of his mission as a bestowal son. So for now, all comments are welcomed. Feel free to email me, urantiabookradio at gmail.com, urantiabookradio at gmail.com. You can also get my contact information on my website, urantiaradio.net. Until next time, thanks for stopping by the Urantia Radio Podcast. And again, God bless, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.